0: Haggai, who is described in the first chapter of his prophecy as the Lord's messenger in the Lord's message, was initially tasked with rousing a procrastinating people from their selfish lifestyles and having them resume the work to which God had called them, namely the reconstruction of the temple in Jerusalem. 24 days after he delivered that first message, which takes up almost all of chapter 1, we read at the end of that chapter that the people came having their spirits stirred up by the Lord, having their hearts awoken by God, and resumed that work of rebuilding the temple. And then after one month, Haggai prophesied a second time, which we did not take the time to read today, chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. And in that work, in that message, rather, Haggai reminded the people of God that the work in which they were engaged was a work of faith, that it was not to be assessed with the eye. That there was to be no comparison with previous generations or previous times because the work of God continues despite a change in generations. And that they were to be busy as they looked to a coming glory. And concerning this temple, this particular building which was being constructed here in Jerusalem, in the center of Judah the glory to which Haggai referred primarily was the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, as he would hundreds of years later come, first of all as a little baby and be cradled in Simeon's arms, and then as a full-grown man exercising his public ministry, and he would be seen in that temple, the Son of God who would make peace through the blood of his cross. And then the passage from which I want to brings some thoughts for your attention this morning. The third message of Haggai is in chapter 2, verses 10 to 19. It was issued exactly three months after the temple building was resumed, and it actually relates to the same theme as the first message, which is another reason why we read chapter 1. The theme of that message is the disobedience of God's people, and of course their need to repent from it. But in chapter 2, verses 10 to 19, the effects of that disobedience are different and the effects that Haggai dwells on are different from those considered in the first message. I want to read a parallel passage with you this morning that will help us to have a better understanding. You'll find it in Ezra chapter 3. Ezra chapter 3 tells us an alternative account of what is actually happening here at this time. The historical record of the rebuilding of the temple and I want to read just five verses in Ezra chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It says there, And when the seventh month was come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. Then stood up Jeshua, the son of Jozadak and his brethren the priests, and Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, and builded the altar of the God of Israel, to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God, And they set the altar upon his bases, for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. And they offered burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. They kept also the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the custom, as the duty of every day required. And afterward offered the continual burnt offering, both of the new moons, and of all the set feasts of the Lord that were consecrated, and of everyone that willingly offered a freewill offering unto the Lord. What you read in those verses, combined with what we find in Haggai 2 and verse 14, at the end of that verse, which says, that which they offer there, tells us that the people of Judah had continued to engage in religious worship all throughout the time during which they had spent In the land of Judah, when they returned from exile, since they started the reconstruction of the temple until now, they had been offering sacrifices to God upon the altar that was constructed, as we read in Ezra chapter 3. They were required by Levitical law to observe certain feasts, to observe certain religious rituals, and they outwardly had conformed to that law. They had kept that law even while they were being disobedient to the the command of God to build the temple. They professed to be the Lord's people, and they were engaged in worship, in the offering of sacrifices. But the point in Haggai's message, chapter 2, verses 10 to 19, is that this worship upon that altar that they constructed when they returned to Judah was not acceptable. God was not pleased with their offerings. Haggai 2, verse 14. And that which they offer there is unclean. Their disobedience made all that they did in the house of God, upon the altar that was consecrated to the worship of God, to be unclean. And so we have a message from Haggai to the people of Judah and a message from God to all of us today regarding the importance of worshiping the Lord in the beauty of holiness. That's our theme today. Worship the Lord. In the beauty of holiness, a phrase that you'll find in Psalm 29 and Psalm 96, because it is this that God desires from all who will approach Him in worship, the beauty of holiness. In the eyes of God, men and women, this morning, there is no beauty like the beauty of holiness. There is no beauty of clothing or of architecture or of music or of speech or of personality or just of sheer effort that could be compared with the beauty of holiness. It says in Psalm 24 and verse 3, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord. Even now as they are engaged in temple building, having been obedient to Haggai's first message, and they are constructing this this place for the worship of God, there of course was the danger that they would carry out this work with unsanctified hearts, just as they had been doing for perhaps up to 16 years, offering sacrifices which before God were unclean because they were disobedient. Men and women, when we neglect our duty before the Lord, we are disobedient. When we come before the Lord, even into his house this very morning, and we outwardly worship God, we pick up the hymnal, we lift the Bible, we sing, and we bow our heads to pray, and we read, and we listen to the preaching of God. Yet, if there is unconfessed sin in our hearts, if there is in our lives a matter or matters concerning which we are disobedient, and we know it, then this worship is unclean. God would have us worship him in the beauty of holiness. Notice in Haggai's third message, chapter 2 and verse 10, that the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet and first of all told him in verse 11, ask now the priests concerning the law. First thought for you this morning is that this message concerning worshipping God and the beauty of holiness begins in conference with the priest. In conference with the priest. Whereas the first two messages in Haggai's prophecy were delivered to the entire people of Judah and to their their leaders grouped together, this message is preached to a very select group of the nation, the priests. This would have included the man named Joshua, who we read of in chapter 1. And he is told, that is, Haggai is told by God to go and speak to the priests concerning the law because it was the priests in Judah who were responsible for teaching and for interpreting and enforcing the law of God. Haggai's inquiry to the priests, therefore, had a bearing on their responsibility as God's ministers of the law. The priests were liable in the land of Judah concerning the observance of God's law by the people of Judah. Malachi 2 and verse 7 tells us the priest's lip should keep knowledge and they should seek the law at his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Here is the responsibility of the priest to teach and interpret and enforce the law. Now you might think Haggai is a prophet of the Lord. Why did he need to go and talk to the priests? Why couldn't he just deliver the message to the people of Judah himself and tell them that they were unclean? Well, it is because according to God's design, God gave, God instituted the office of the priest. And Haggai, as a true prophet of the Lord, recognizes the God-given authority of the priestly office of the, the Levitical line. God, Haggai recognizes that God has set these men in place to exercise a particular ministry. As a prophet, he does not ignore the law of God. He does not undermine the importance of the law. We live in a day when that happens, sadly, on a regular basis. When people who claim to be the ministers of God to this generation do not concern themselves with the law and with the importance of the law, and rather they undermine it. They don't preach the need for holiness. They don't preach the need to repent from sin. They don't preach... That one, a child of God, could come before the Lord and worship and displease God because they're not concerned with the law. But that's not what Haggai did. In obedience to God's command, he asks the priests concerning the law. And in this conference with the priest, where we see the prophet meeting the priest, I'm reminded, of course, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in him, there's a perfect harmony of the priestly office and the prophetic office because he is the great high priest and he is the perfect prophet. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who not only gave the law, but himself expounds and applies and himself fulfilled the law. He's the epitome of all these things. He is the ultimate priest, the ultimate prophet, and in him we see the union of law and prophet And this gives me an opportunity to remind us of something very important. We're considering a message which calls on God's people to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. We're recognizing that disobedience brings uncleanness in God's people. But we need to remember at this point that it is not by our keeping of the law that a person becomes a child of God in the first place. It is not by our keeping of the law of God that we become saved. I want to read a couple of verses to you from Romans chapter 3 and listen carefully. It says, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. Men and women, this morning, before we go any further, let's be reminded of the wonderful truth that in in this Christian life, in the matter of salvation, that we are justified by faith. We are pardoned and accepted as we lay hold of Jesus Christ by faith. We receive his imputed righteousness by faith, not by works, not by legal observance. And so understand this morning that the basis of our Our union with God, our union with Christ, the basis of our standing before God is not resting upon our works. It is not resting upon our performance, but it is resting upon Christ. But that said, for for those of us who are justified by faith, Haggai's message calls us to recognize what the Bible teaches, which is that as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. And in this conference with the priest, Haggai asked two important questions. You'll find the first of them in verse 12. If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt do touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priests answered and said, no. According to the ceremonial law, Animal flesh that had been part of a sacrifice was legally and ceremonially sanctified. The flesh of the animal was sanctified, and it was sanctified or holy in the sense of being sacred and now being consecrated to the Lord. The priest was entitled to a portion for his own meal, and perhaps that was the context in which then you would have seen the priest in those days carrying flesh in the skirt of his garment, as it says in Haggai 2 and verse 12. According to Leviticus, the priest's garment in which the flesh rested was hallowed by that act. But the garment, should it touch anything else, could not transfer holiness to that other thing. The lesson is very clear. Holiness is not transferable. Holiness is not transferable. And this is a very important fact that every person, not just a child or a young person, but every person who has been raised in a Christian home needs to consider most seriously. Those who are part of a Christian family where the parents are saved or perhaps the grandparents are saved but are not themselves saved needs to acknowledge that your contact with God's people gives you no standing with God. That your membership of that family home does not give you membership or adoption into the family of God. The righteousness that has been imputed to your saved family member by faith has not been imputed to you because holiness is not transferable. And what has been imputed to you, what has been imparted or transferred to you rather, not imputed, is sin. It is original sin. The corruption of man's whole nature. Passed down by generation since the fall of Adam. And the only way to be cleansed from that sin is to personally receive Jesus Christ. And be pardoned and to be washed and made clean by the power of his atoning blood. Holiness is not transferable. Men and women, if you would be made holy in the eyes of God. If you would be accepted by God, just as accepted, just as as much part of his family as his own dearly begotten son, then you need to trust in Jesus Christ. You must be and can only be justified by faith. And then Haggai Haggai asks a second question, chapter 2 and verse 13. Then said Haggai, if one that is unclean by a dead body, touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priests answered and said, it shall be unclean. This is the converse principle. Haggai asks about an unclean person. According to the law of God given in Numbers 19, God stipulated that if a person touched a corpse, they would be regarded as ceremonially unclean for seven days. And during that period, the Bible says, and I quote, whatsoever the unclean person toucheth shall be unclean. The priests answered in the affirmative. And the lesson for us is uncleanness is transferable. That sinfulness is contagious. In verse 17, there's a particular word which I find interesting and from which I want to try to draw an illustration of this principle of that uncleanness is contagious. That's the word mildew. And it made me think about potatoes. And I'm not going to try, I hope, and make you hungry for your dinner. But it made me think about potatoes because it refers, of course, to a kind of a disease that the Lord smote the people of Judah's crops with, which is very similar to the disease known as blight. We're all familiar with potatoes. It was not in this country some centuries ago, it's not native to this land. It was the most important new food in Europe in the 19th century, perhaps more recent than you would have thought. It first came around here as a novelty, something that gentlemen grew in their gardens, but eventually it became very popular in Russia and France and Germany and Ireland and many other places because it was cheap, because it was filling, and because you could store potatoes for long periods in the right conditions. And for these reasons, the economic constraints of poor people, especially, especially in rural areas, could be alleviated by growing potatoes instead of other crops. And that's why, in 1845, one-third of all the arable land in Ireland was used for growing potatoes. One problem with this otherwise wonderful plant was that it was particularly susceptible to disease. In 1845, there was a particularly bad outbreak of blight which absolutely decimated the Irish potato crop. I don't know if you've ever seen a blighted potato plant, but if you have one plant in the corner of a field that's infected with blight, it can release its spores which are carried by the wind and they'll cover the whole field in just a matter of days. The leaves will turn black. The disease will travel into the stalk and down into the tuber, into the actual root, and then they'll turn it all black and mushy. And I don't know if you've ever lifted a rotten potato, but there are a few things that smell worse. It really is horrible. But that's what blight does. It's transferable. It's contagious. And you absolutely should have in your minds that that is what sin is like. And isn't it powerful that the Lord smote these people with a punishment that was a picture of the very problem that was in their hearts. That in a time when they came before the Lord, professing to worship Him, coming to hear His word, coming to bring their sacrifices, yet in their hearts there was blight. There was a blackness. There was an uncleanness. And it affected everything they did. Even the worship of God. Even the sacrifices on the altar. Even those sacrifices of burnt offering. The Lord says in verse 14, that which they offered there is unclean, rotten. It's just like blight. Sin is contagious even amongst the people of God. Like a blight, sin spreads rapidly. And Haggai goes on in his message, having begun with a conference with the priest, he then deals with the consequences of sin. Verse 14. Then answered Haggai and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, saith the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and that which they offer there is unclean. Regardless of the precision or the beauty of their worship, regardless of how fine the animal was that they brought to sacrifice before the Lord, God says it was unclean. This is a very common failure. Remember what Cain, the son of Adam and Eve, did. When it was God's will that he be worshipped by an offering of the sacrifice of an animal and the shedding of blood, Cain brought the first fruits of the fields. He brought that over which he had labored and that we might well speculate about which he was quite proud. And he disobeyed God. The Lord had no respect to his offering. He brought what he thought was very fine. But in the very act of doing so, he was disobedient. And the Lord did not accept his offering. What about King Saul? King Saul had to be told by Samuel, after he had offered a sacrifice to the Lord, which the Lord was not pleased with, 1 Samuel 15, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. God is not pleased by sacrifices offered from a disobedient heart. God is not pleased by those who come and profess outwardly to worship him all the while having sin in their hearts. Psalm 66, we read it this morning. Verse 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. God could see Cain's heart. He could see the heart of King Saul and he can see right into yours. He could see right into mine. And so we ask ourselves the question today, what is it that God sees us regarding? What are we dwelling on? What is it that we have been guilty of knowingly that we need to repent from? God says in verse 14, rather, Haggai says for God, So is this people, and so is this nation before me. And that's significant, just the use of that demonstrative. It's got a sense of distance rather than the close and personal pronoun, which he could have used, my people, or my nation, for they were. They were God's people. But here he says, this people, and that's because of their sin. Sin brings a distance. Sin brings a coldness. We must repent of our sin, men and women. If we would come before the Lord in His house and know times of blessing, times of nearness, times of the presence of God in our own personal walk with the Lord, if we would not be this people, but if we would be His people, close to Him, we must not regard sin in our hearts. The consequences of sin, the defilement that we have already noted with the thought of what blight does to a crop and the blackness of the blight of sin in the heart, this is one of the consequences of sin. Let's read verse 15. And now I pray you consider from this day and upward. From before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord. Since those days where, when one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the press fat for to draw out fifty vessels out of the press, there were but twenty. I smote you with blasting and with mildew and with hail in all the labors of your hands. Yet ye turned not to me, saith the Lord. It didn't matter what kind of affliction God gave these people physically, whether it was blasting, which was a hot easterly wind coming and shriveling everything up that was in its path, whether it was mildew like a blight rotting and corrupting all the crops and all the produce and all the field, or whether it was hail in all the labors of the hands, all their efforts were futile because it was God's purpose to chastise them and to afflict them because of their sin. It seems that the corn that they would have grown and eaten was so full of straw that it only yielded half of what it would have normally yielded. The grapes that they pressed were so poor that they only received 40% of the normal yield. Everything was affected because of sin. Sin is contagious. The consequences of your sin will not be compartmentalized. You can't keep them to that little arena, that part of your week, those few hours, that part of your house where it's committed. It's contagious. It's like a blight. God had afflicted the people. It was designed to have them turned back to him. Yet in verse 17, we see another consequence of sin, not just defilement, but also spiritual insensitivity. It says at the end of verse 17, Yet ye turned not to me, saith the Lord. Spiritual insensitivity, coldness, an unsanctified heart, a heart where there is unconfessed sin, can leave that child of God in a spiritual fog Being dull and being imperceptive to God's providential promptings and leading. How we need, how you need to be aware of what God is leading you to. How we need to be perceptive and sensitive to the will of God. How many worship services have you sat through, child of God, with a cold heart and missed out on blessing? How many times have you come when others around you have been blessed? Perhaps visibly so, you can hear them. You hear them talk afterwards about how the word of God blessed them and you just sit cold, miserable. You need to confess your sin. You need to pray for the Lord to deliver you. Sin makes us like the Hebrews to be dull of hearing if today you sense this unconfessed sin in your heart, if you see that you are knowingly disobedient to the commands of God, you need to respond in the right way. God is speaking to you through his word, calling on you to worship him properly, to worship him in the beauty of holiness, and you must turn back to the Lord God called to the people of Judah through his word there in chapter one. He called on them to cease from their disobedience and stop procrastinating and to get on with the work of God and to pick up the tools again and to start building the temple. And it was then, if you look in verse 18, consider now from this day and upward, the day that Haggai's preaching here from the four and 20th day of the ninth month. But then he goes back even from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed yet in the barn? Yea, as yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree hath not, hath not brought forth. From this day will I bless you. I believe that the stirring that took place after Haggai's first message is again referred to here in his Third message between verse 17 and verse 18. A stirring by God upon his people to bring them from disobedience to obedience. And brought with it the promised response. Blessing. The blessing of God. God is faithful and God will keep his promise to his covenant people. 2 Chronicles 7.14 If my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray... And seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And so we find at the close of Haggai's message in verse 17 and 18 that those who do worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, that those who do confess their sin, are blessed by having confidence toward God. A final thought today confidence toward God. As we read already, verse 18, consider now. And at the end of verse 19, from this day, I will bless you. Since the Lord had graciously spoken to the people of Judah and called on them through the prophet to consider their ways and have subsequently operated by the Holy Spirit and stirred up their hearts, now they were living in obedience. And this obedience was rewarded with the promise that God would bless, even though the time for the next harvest had not yet come, and their cupboards weren't full, even though it says in verse, eight, verse 19, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree hath not brought forth. These people were still hungry. They had not yet received a great bounty of blessing, but they had the word of God. That as they lived in obedience, as they worshiped the Lord in obedience, from this day I will bless you. They had confidence toward God. They didn't have full storehouses, but that was going to come. God said, from this day, I will bless you. It reminded me of 1 John 3, which is where I took the wording of this thought, confidence toward God. Let me read to you, or if you wish, you can look. 1 John 3, 21 and 22. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. If there is no unconfessed sin, nothing that is getting us, making us miserable, like the psalmist in Psalm 37, where he says that his bones waxed old through his roaring all the day long. Day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. And then he confesses his sin. And he finds restoration. When that is the case, in the words of 1 John 3:21, beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. And, verse 22, whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. It was the testimony of the Apostle Paul that he sought to live in all good conscience before God. It's not impossible. It's absolutely achievable by the power of the Holy Spirit to live in all good conscience before God, and to know God speaking to us every day and leading us in the way we should go. We won't know that if we're in disobedience. We won't know the blessing of God in the times of worship in the house of God if we come into God's house with filthy hands and an impure heart. Won't happen. The people of Judah had now The blessing of having confidence toward God. They knew they had no reason to be confident in themselves. You know that, don't you? I know it. Not as well as I should. But I know I have no reason to be confident in myself. I've let myself down. Never mind anybody else or the Lord enough times. And you all have too. But we can have confidence toward God. They had tried and failed many times before. Bitter experience would rob these people of their self-confidence, and therefore, as Romans 8.28 tells us, that experience now worked for their good because they would have confidence toward God and not in themselves. God gives the promise of a fruitful harvest in the future. But for all that, let's, as we come to a close, remind ourselves that whether it's the beauty or the blessing of a great harvest— whether it's the blessing of a full granary or a fruitful vine, this is nothing in comparison to the blessing of this closeness, this confidence towards God, which we may have. The psalmist said, and he, he emphasized the priority, the importance that the Christian, in which the Christian should hold this close fellowship with the Lord. He said, one thing have I desired of the Lord. That will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. This is what it is to worship God in the beauty of holiness. There is nothing like it. There is nothing like being with brothers and sisters in Christ and praying and knowing the nearness of God. And so on this day, consider your ways, consider your heart, and perhaps you find it necessary to turn from your sin, to turn from your disobedience, and to seek the Lord. And if you do, God's promise to you today is one of a personal renewal. From this day, I will bless you. May God write his word on all of our hearts. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, weak and sinful though we be, Jesus' blood can cleanse from sin. And so, Lord, we come at the close of this time and we ask for the cleansing of the precious blood The blood that was shed for rebels and for sinners. The blood that I personally can thank God was shed for me and for every child of God. Oh Lord, forgive us for our wandering and for our disobedience and for our selfishness and for all those times that we do not put Thee first. And Lord, how we've paid the price in missed opportunities, in times when we knew no blessing even as we sat in the house of God and others were blessed. O oh Lord, forgive us. And we ask, Lord, that we would know in the future times of blessing, times of rich harvests spiritually, O oh God, that the, the sin that has spread like a contagion throughout our lives would be checked, that it would be cleansed away, that we would walk with God. And as we are commanded, as is our very reasonable service, to present our lives unto God, to present our bodies. Oh Lord, that we would serve thee, that we would be continually transformed by the renewing of our mind and that we would know that this congregation would know clearly, oh God, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God for them. So Lord, give help. Give help to us to put feet to our prayers and to have discipline and to exercise Discipline in our lives to be continually reading the word of God and praying for the help of God. Lord, we have no confidence in ourselves, but we are thankful that God is faithful. That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Bless all who are gathered here. Lord, all who are able to bring us back again this evening to worship again. And keep us safe, Lord, as we travel, perhaps some further than others. Keep your hand upon our visitors. Keep your hand upon all our families here. Oh, Lord, just watch over the people of God and Rain. And as we come again this evening, may our hearts be prepared to hear a word. Bring sinners in, oh God, we pray in Jesus' name.